from Domino. Man, I wish those guys had taught me life skills at school. Would have been a bit different. Would have been a bit awesome, right? So good Friday service on Friday on the Norfolk Field. I'm excited. It's not normally uh, our habit to, to have something out of the ordinary on our, on our good Friday service. Um, obviously, with the re- current restrictions, 100 in the building, 250 out the building, I think it lends itself to that. Uh, 7 o'clock in the morning is also not our norm for a service. But if there's any time when it's, uh, when it's a good time to take ourselves out of our comfort zones, it's a good Friday service, right? And so I'm, I'm excited about what God's going to do, what God's going what God, what, what to reveal to us uh, at, at that good Friday service. I'm excited about it, and I trust that you are too. We've made it 7 o'clock in the morning because uh, being outside, it could get a bit warm as we go later, and so we'd rather have it earlier. We don't want it any earlier because then the grass is wet. We live, in the, we live with the sea. So we try to hit it in the middle, not too hot, not too cold. Goldilocks would eat it. That's what we want. That's what we're going for from that service. So I trust if you would, yeah, I trust if you'd put that in your diary with 250 that you can invite one or two people too. Uh, between the three services, we'll, <laughs> we'll be over that, but let's have a look and see how it goes, all right? Uh, we start a new series today called Six Hours, One Friday. Um, obviously, Easter is coming up in a few weeks, and we, we want to look at some of the things that took place when Jesus died and when he rose again. Uh, some of the things that took place in that, uh, in that moment and in, in, the, in the events leading up to that moment. And uh, much of the, some, some of the materials taken out of a book called Six Hours, One Friday by a guy called Max Lopardo. And I c- can recommend the book to you if you are a reader. I can recommend it. And if you're not a reader, uh, I can also highly recommend it. It is, it is a easy read and uh, it's, it's, well, it's well worth the read of you. I think there's a few significant days in the church calendar every year. Two of the most widely celebrated, obviously Christmas and Easter. Christmas is my favorite time of year by far uh, because I'm a child. Uh, But Easter, as Christians, I think Easter is more significant to us, uh, more significant than Christmas. And here's why. See, Christmas is Jesus coming to earth. And I, I think possibly that there was another way for Jesus to have come to earth. I think he could have come another way and still achieved what he, what he needed to achieve on earth. But when it comes to Easter, there's no other way that Jesus could have done, could have achieved his objective. His objective was to make way for man to be in that perfect relationship with a holy God. There's no other way for him to do it except dying through the way that he died. So Christmas, he could have come, possibly, he could have come another way. Obviously, the way that Jesus did come is significant. It fulfills prophetic words. It fulfills prophetic pictures. And it's important to us, absolutely. I think there could have been another way for him to come. There's absolutely no other way for him to have died and still achieved his objective other than Easter, other than the way that he did die. See, there's no other way because God is unchanging. He's not able to say one thing and then do another. He's not able to break his laws. The same laws that we are bound by, God is bound by. Because if he's able to change his laws, then, it's, then they're not unbreakable, right? His laws, his laws are not absolutes if he's able to change them. If he's able to break them, then they're not unbreakable. So God's laws are unchanging and unbreakable. They are absolute and they are unbreakable. Therefore, he is bound by them. He cannot change them and he cannot break them. But yet he still needed to satisfy his, his sense of justice. And so the only option that he was left with is sacrifice. But people had spent hundreds and hundreds of years making sacrifice. And the problem of sin was never dealt with. Because the sacrifices that were offered day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, every sacrifice that was offered only ever dealt with the sinful things that people did. The sins that we commit, that was the only thing 
that those sacrifices could deal with. They never dealt with the root of the problem. Because the root of the problem is not the, not the simple things that you do. The root of the problem is the sinful nature that man has. And so those sacrifices, year after year, were never able to deal with the root cause of that. And those sacrifices are offering, that were offered are repetitive. They're exhausting, but they're never enough because they can't deal with the sinful nature. Easter is significant, I believe, because it was the only way. The only way was for a sacrifice to be made that not only deals with the sinful things we do, but that deals with the sinful nature that we have in us, the root problem of sin. The only way for this nature to be changed is through a perfect, unblemished sacrifice to be made once and for all. Not for the, not, not for the, for the, the bad nature that we had to be made good, but for, for that bad nature to die and a new nature to be born. That's why when Nicodemus is talking to Jesus in John chapter 3, Jesus, he's asking him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, you must be born again. He says, what are you, what are you talking about born again? He says, you are born of flesh. You were born from your mother, born of flesh. If you want to inherit eternal life, you must be born again. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice is not able to make you born again. It is only able to deal with the bad things that you do. It's never able to make you perfect with a holy God. Easter is important because of what it signifies, but because it was God's only option. God put all of his eggs in one basket when it came to Easter. I think it was an Easter basket, but he put all of his eggs into one basket. He, there was no other option. This, this was plan A. There was no plan B. It was the only option that God had was to sacrifice his perfect, unblemished son. And so the next couple of weeks, we want to take a journey leading into Easter and look at a couple of the encounters that Jesus had with people before the cross and pull out a couple of things that are significant for us. Because Easter, Easter is not just an event. It's not a Friday and a Sunday. It's not, it's not a one-day event and a one-day event. Or it's not even a three-day event. It's a journey. It's a journey that takes place. It starts in Jerusalem, and then it goes up to a hill of execution called Golgotha. And from that hill, it moves on to a tomb. And then from the tomb, it moves back into Jerusalem. And then from Jerusalem, it moves on to Judea through Samaria, and to the outermost parts of the earth, through us. It's a journey. And so we want to go for the next couple of weeks on the journey of Easter with Jesus. For the next couple of weeks, we want to address the three Fs on the human report card. The three Fs. The things that, the, the, the weights of which are too heavy for us to bear. The, the burden of which we cannot carry on our own. The Fs of futility, failure, and finality. Every human report card has those three Fs on it. Futility, failure, and finality. And we cannot deal with them on our own. And so today I want to address futility and say to us that what Jesus did on the cross is make it possible for our lives not to be futile. To be futile means pointless or meaningless. And so what Jesus did on the cross is he made it possible for the lives that we live here on earth to not be pointless, to, to not be meaningless, and to not be futile. That's one of the things that Jesus did. Many people would say, as soon as I say that, many people would say straight away, my, my life's not pointless. That's wonderful. My life's not meaningless. But what, what I've found is that not, many, not very many people sit down and actually think deeply about their own lives. We, we don't think very deeply about what gives our life purpose and what gives our life meaning. And so we settle for the easy answers. My life is uh, not pointless because I've got a family. That's wonderful. My life's not meaningless because I'm, I've got a, I'm building a successful career for myself. Friends, those, those, those things are they're good. You must have both of those things. But what if your family was taken away from you? What if you lost your job? Does your life then become futile? Is your life, if that's what gives your life meaning and purpose, 
when those things are taken away, is your taken away, is your life then futile? What about the millions of people around the world who don't have a family, who don't have a job? Is their lives futile? Are their lives pointless and meaningless? I trust the answer would be no. I, I think as Christians in the world that we live in, especially at the moment, we need to we need to push past the easy answers and search for deep truths, deeper meaning. We have to become comfortable to wrestle with uncomfortable questions and honest answers. We need to become familiar with doubt. Did you know that it's okay for you to wrestle with doubt? Jesus wrestled with doubt. See, Jesus knew, him him and the Father and and the Spirit had been through this many times. He knew that there was no other way than for him to be the perfect unblemished sacrifice. He knew that. And yet you see in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he goes to the cross, he sits with his Father and he says, Father, is there another way? Is there another way? He knew that there was no other way. And yet he still wrestles. He doesn't wrestle with what he has to do. He wrestles with the purpose of it. Is there another way? And then we have an example of beautiful surrender. Not my will, but yours be done. See, friends, it's good for us to question. It's good for us to ask deep, honest, raw questions. It's good for us to do that. And it's okay for us to doubt. It's good to question, and it's okay to doubt. But our questioning and our doubt always has to land in surrender. Not my will but yours be done. Question, and it's okay to doubt, and always land in both in surrender. Don't have weakly formed but strongly held beliefs. Have strongly formed, loosely held beliefs. Don't, don't let your opinions and your beliefs be weakly formed. Form them strongly, because when they are weakly formed, we hold on to them too tightly. That it's a problem. I see too many people in the world currently just with very weakly formed beliefs, yet we strongly hold on to them. No, our our beliefs need to be strongly formed and we hold on to them loosely. So I want to convince you today that that those of you who believe your life could be futile and pointless and meaningless, I trust that I would be able to convince you that it's not. And for those of us that feel our lives have a point and meaning and are not futile because of our work and our families, I I trust that I'd be able to convince you that perhaps there's a higher purpose that makes your life not futile. So I'm going to read a fairly lengthy piece of scripture Stay with me because I want to read the entire story. I want to put the story into perspective and then pull out a couple of things for us out of the story. So stay with me as we read the story. John chapter 4. Excuse me. It goes like this. Now he had to go through Samaria, and he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman answered, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself? As did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in them a spring of well of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw again. He told her, Go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the one you're with now is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Jump down to verse 25. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. 
just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jug, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. So firstly, a couple of observations. Jesus treats this woman with kindness. And because he treats her with kindness, he gets an honest response from her. See, friends, kindness has a way of inviting honesty from others. When we treat people with kindness, it invites an honest response. So we spoke about having strongly formed opinions and holding them loosely. You know, the, you know one of the best ways to have a strongly formed opinion is to get input on your opinion on, and your beliefs from people who are not like you, from people who are very different to you. I, I want input on the things that I believe from people that don't walk, think, talk, dress, act like me. I want them from people who are very different to me. Otherwise, I've got a loosely formed opinion, a weakly formed opinion. If I, want it from, if I want it from people not like me, the best way to do that is to treat them with kindness. Kindness has a way of inviting honesty from strangers. When we treat people with kindness, they, they, are, honest, they are, are able to be honest with us. If we don't, our opinions are only ever formed in an echo chamber. In other words, I hear my same opinion bounced back to me in a different way, from a di with, with a different, slightly different voice, and it just bounces back to me. My, my opinion just bounces back to me in an echo chamber. I don't want just cement. I want concrete, right? Cement is just is, is, is a commodity. If I want concrete to be strong, to build a foundation of a house, I, want some, I need cement, sand, water, stone to make concrete. If I'm not getting input from people not like me, stone and sand and water, I only ever have cement. It might look good, but it's not very strong. I want a strongly held, a strongly formed opinion, and I want to hold it loosely. Jesus treats this woman with kindness, and so she's honest with him. Jesus doesn't look from a perf for a perfect answer from her. He simply looks for her honesty. Friends, Jesus does the same with us. When Jesus treats us with kindness, he's not looking for a perfect response from us. Jesus isn't waiting for you to pray the perfect prayer, to ask the perfect question, to have the perfect answer. He's not looking for any of those things from you. What he's looking for is honesty. When he treats us with kindness, he's simply looking for honesty. As we form, as we form our opinions strongly, come before God with honesty and come before others with kindness. You know, did you notice what else Jesus does for her? He frees her life from the futility of what she does day after day after day. It's her work. She comes to Jesus and she says, uh, day after day, I come here to get water. Um, and it seems like the more water I get, the thirstier people get. I, I, get, I get more water and it gets drunk just as quickly. And, and, and I come the next day, more water. And it, it feels like a never-ending cycle. And I'm not sure, as a parent, I can identify with that. It seems like the more food we provide, the hungrier the kids get, right? The more we clean the house, the dirtier the house gets. It, it's, it's, it's the very definition of futility. This woman is going day after day, getting water. It's not solving anything. The town that she's at is a town there. It's, it's, it starts out in verse 4. It says a town in, the province, in, in Samaria called Sychar. And that word Sychar is, when you translate it into English, it means the end. So this woman is going to the end. She's going to the end of herself, to the end of her ability, to the end of what she's able to do, to the end of her community and her family. Every day she's going to the end, getting water, coming back, and then the next day to the end, coming back and getting water. She, she's putting herself out there, and it's the very definition of futility. There's no meaning. She's wondering, is there any meaning to what I do? So Jesus' offer of living water that will come from within 
and make you never thirst again is appealing to her. It's appealing because to her, it's a way out of her futility. She says, sir, please give me this water because if I can give that to the people I'm giving water to, they will not be thirsty. I don't need to come and do this. I I don't need to go to the end of myself day after day after day after day because they they won't be thirsty again. It's an appealing offer to her. Then Jesus goes to the heart, for the heart of her problem. See, his kindness and her honesty allow Jesus to get to the root of her problem. Kindness invites honesty from others. When, when, when we are honest, Jesus, it allows Jesus to get to the root of our problem, her restlessness. She is restless. She is restlessly searching for a husband to make her life complete. Perhaps the reason that she does this daily water trip is to, get, is to convince the man that she's currently with, who seems quite reluctant to marry her, uh, she's trying to convince him that I can provide water, I can provide for the household, and I'm able to work hard. I'm, I'm, I'm worthy of being married to you. I'm worthy of ma- you marrying me. And she's restlessly trying to do this day after day after day. You see, friends, you will never be able to truly rest until you realize that your life is not futile. You'll never be able to rest until you realize that your life has a purpose and it has meaning. Here she is going to draw water day after day, wondering to herself, is what I do worth it? All of this effort, day after day after day, is it worth it? The daily repetition seems to have no reward for her. Jesus gives her a solution. He says to her, forget the reward that you think you want. What will free you from your futility is purpose, because when I give you purpose, you will find rest. For how many of us is sleep simply a refuge? The, the couple of hours, I don't know how many hours of sleep you get a night, all of, most of us feel like it's not enough. For, the, the, for most adults, the couple of hours of sleep that you have a night can be a refuge. For too many people, they view sleep as a refuge, a refuge from the pointlessness, a refuge from the meaninglessness and the futility of life. And so I live this life this way, and the, the couple of hours sleep that I get at night, I, I don't rest, it's just a refuge. I get, I, 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 I'm able to escape the futility of my life. Friends, I can promise you, for this Syrian woman that night, sleep wasn't a refuge for her. She was already at rest. Jesus had given her a purpose and she was able to rest. Sleep that night was the best sleep she ever had. See, for kids, sleep is not a refuge. Sleep is a robber. Sleep robs children of the joy of being awake. That's why they fight it. You can, they can tell you all about their day, all afternoon. You can sit at the dinner table and, and, and they can talk until they've spoken all of their stories. But then it's bedtime and what happens? one more story dad there's just one more thing that i forgot to tell you and then and then two minutes later dad i just want to sing you a song that i learned today and then and then two minutes later dad i just need one more sip of water right they're not fighting you they're not fighting your authority what they're doing is they're fighting sleep because sleep robs children of the joy of being awake too many adults view sleep as a refuge a refuge from the pointlessness the futility and the meaninglessness of life i can promise you For that Syrian woman that night, sleep robbed her. Sleep wasn't a refuge for her. Sleep robbed her of the joy of the purpose and rest that Jesus had given to her. Here's what it goes on to say about her a few verses later. John 4, verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two more days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you've said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. And so Jesus treats her with kindness, which invites truth from her, and he still offers kindness when the truth is given. Too many of us think we see Jesus as kind, 
that we're concerned that when, when we respond to his kindness with honesty, that he will no longer be kind. He, he treats her with kindness. She responds in honesty. And when Jesus continues to treat her with kindness, he gets to the root of their problem. He offers her a purpose and he gives her rest. I love how verse 28 starts off. It starts off by saying, leaving behind her water jug, she goes to tell, she runs off to tell the town everything that she had done. This water jug represents the burden that she's been carrying every day, carrying this burden uh, to fill it up with water, and then it's heavy, and she carries it back to the people that she's, that she's giving water to, and then although it's empty the next day, she's bringing it back, but it's still heavy. It's empty, it's, it's empty of water, but it's heavy with the burden. It's heavy with the burden of her purposelessness, of her futility and her restlessness, and she fills it with water and takes it back, and she fills it with water and takes it back. Every day carrying this burden, she has an honest encounter with a kind Savior, and she leaves her water jug behind. And off she goes to tell the town what you did. There's, there's, a word, there's a word for that left behind water jug. We call them gravestones. A gravestone reminds us where a loved one is left behind. A gravestone reminds us of a, it gives us a place to bury our sadness. It gives us a place to come and remember. This woman leaves behind her burden, the thing that had burdened her day after day, her purposelessness, her meaninglessness, her restlessness, her futility, her burden. It has a place where she can remember it, where she can remember an, a kind encounter with a gentle Savior, an honest encounter with a kind Savior. She leaves it behind as a place to remember, and then she's able to go off with purpose and into rest. I was getting ready for church a couple of weeks ago, and I was, went into my kitchen to make coffee. It was early in the morning, and uh, Norman sleeps in the kitchen. Norman is my daughter's hamster. He sleeps in the kitchen because he makes a, a noise. He's nocturnal. We're not. And so he's banished to the kitchen with the door closed. Him and the dishwasher, they can fight it out all night long. And so I went, I went into the kitchen to make coffee, and uh, <laughs> while I'm, I'm busy boiling the mocha pot, I hear Norman going for a run. And what he does is his, his uh, routine is he goes for five or six seconds, and he empties the tank. Brrr, as fast as he can go, five, six seconds, and then he stops, and he looks out the window of his wheel to see where he's gone. And I'm not sure if this is correct or not, but it looked that morning as if there was joy on his face. He had a little smile. He had a, if it's possible for a dwarf hamster to smile, that morning he was smiling. And I remember laughing because it looked like he was smiling. And then, and then he does it again. After he's looked out the window, back into his wheel, and he goes for it, and then he stops six seconds, and he looks out of the window again, smile, living his best life, having the time of his life, and then re repeat again. And, and that morning I laughed at him. As the, as the mocha pot was boiling, I laughed. I thought, Stupid little hamster. Look, look, look how pleased he is with himself. Doesn't he realize he's not, his brain is too small to not realize that he's not going anywhere. He looks out the window, he doesn't recognize where he is, and so he's pleased. He thinks he's done something of meaning, something of purpose. <laughs> Stupid little hamster. And I went down to give my wife a coffee. I, I was giggling a couple of times. <laughs> Stupid little Norman. Got dressed and went to church. And then I sat down in church and I wondered, for how many of us is coming to church basically the same thing. It's an activity that we repeat over and over again, and we feel pretty good about ourselves for doing it. And yet when we look out the window, we realize that we actually haven't gone anywhere. All we've done is keep ourselves busy and made just enough noise to be banished to the kitchen alone at night. See, friends, coming to church won't give your life purpose. Coming to church won't give your life purpose. Coming to church won't make your life any less futile. It's only when I've had an honest encounter with a kind Savior called Jesus that I have purpose 
and I'm freed from hamster-wheeling my way through life, feeling pretty pleased that I've done something, not realizing I've never fulfilled any purpose. And so what happens in that scenario is we keep on we keep moving the goalposts. We move the goalposts of what, it, of what meaning and purpose is. And so we say, no, it's okay. I have purpose because I've got a job. No, no, it's okay. I've got meaning because I have a family. No, friends, a job and a family is good. This woman had a family and she had a job. She'd had five husbands and she was with another one. She'd had, she tried six different families. I can promise you she tried them six different ways. She still didn't have purpose. She had a job day after day after day. She had a job. She had family and she had a job. And yet her life was still meaningless, purposeless, and, fu- and futile. Wondering, is there any worth to this? I close with the tragic words on a headstone that sits in a cemetery in the United States. A lady of the name by the name Grace Llewellyn Smith, and it reads as follows. Sleeps, but rests not. Loved, but was loved not. Tried to please, but pleased not. Died as she lived, alone. It's an eternal remembrance to a life lived in futility. A life chasing something that is constantly beyond your grasp. Repeating it day after day after day. Hamster wheeling your way through life. Looking out the window and convincing ourselves everything. It's good. I'm still serving a purpose. There is still meaning to our life. A life lived in futility. We contrast, we contrast this tragic headstone with the Syrian woman's water jug left behind where her burdens are buried. Her purposeness and futility finds a place where she can remember that's where it was. That's where I met, where I had an honest encounter with a kind Savior called Jesus who gave me purpose so that I was able to find rest. See, Easter puts to end the futility of sacrifice. Those priests have been offering millions upon millions upon millions of sacrifices, and yet they were never able to deal with the root cause of the problem. They were never able to deal with the sinful nature of man, only with the things that were done. Until Jesus comes and he says, I'll give you rest. Come to me and I will give you rest. My sacrifice will allow you to rest. My sacrifice will make your sacrifice no longer meaningless. That one step that I'd like you to take this week. Last week I said, um, can we take the one step that you take? Can it be taking one step out of your comfort zone towards community? That one step that I'd like you to take this week. Can you go and tell one person one thing that Jesus has done for you? Tell one person one thing that Jesus has done for you. It might be big. It might be very small and insignificant to you. Can you tell one person one thing that Jesus has done for you? And here's the kicker. Can you do it with kindness? Can you do it with unusual kindness? When we treat people with kindness, it invites honesty from them. Can you stand with me, please, friends? See, the invitation from Jesus is clear. He says, come to me. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Weary and heavy laden with purposelessness, with meaninglessness, with futility, weary, heavy laden with the burden of, not, of my life counting for nothing. Is my life futile? Jesus says, those of you who think that way, come to me. Come to me and I will give, I will give you rest. This, this same invitation is repeated time and time again with every person that Jesus has an interaction with in the scriptures. This, this, this invitation is repeated in a different way. He said to them, come and sit with me. Come and listen to the gentleness in my voice. Come and see the kindness in my eyes as I sit with you. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I wonder if today you'd come to Jesus. I wonder if you could respond to his kindness with honesty, with honesty about your true condition, with honesty about your own condition. Could you allow him to free you from striving and futility and to give you rest? 
if you've never given yourself to Jesus, I'd like to give you an opportunity today. If you've never had your old nature dealt with, if you, if, if you think that you are able to offer sacrifices by being good, by being a good person, I want to tell you that your life becomes futile because you will never be good enough to make, to make up for a nature that you don't yet have. Remember we said what, what the sacrifice of Easter does is it doesn't make uh, bad people good. It makes dead people alive and that it, it offers us a new nature. You must be born of the flesh and you must be born again in the spirit. If you've never given yourself to Jesus, if you've never said to him, Jesus, I, today I want to follow you and I want to be made alive in you. If you've never done that, I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I'm not going to ask you to come up. I'd simply like you to raise your hand. and I'd love, it'll be my privilege to pray with you and to pray for you. Is there anyone here this morning? on the rush. Come on the hurry. Is there anyone this morning? I'm going to pray for the rest of us. Father, thank you for giving us your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming to earth and doing the only thing that could have ever made it possible for us to be with you. Today, I thank you that your death on the cross makes it possible for us to live a life of purpose, a life of meaning, and it frees us from the futility of trying to please you because we are already pleasing to you and that we are your children. We come to you this morning. We who are weary and heavy laden, we come to you this morning. We accept your invitation, your offer of rest. I thank you that as we come to you, we would we would see the kindness in your eyes. We would, see, we would hear the 